One of the most destructive fires that happened in European history occurred in September of 1666 when the city of London, England went up in flames a mere year after the bubonic plague had swept through the city and killed a quarter of the population. At the time of the Great Fire, London was still surrounded by an ancient medieval wall. In the decades leading up to this tragedy, the population inside of the old city wall had swelled to dangerous levels. A mixture of poverty and overcrowding had resulted in many makeshift houses with thatched roofs, something that was technically illegal at the time but tolerated due to the overwhelming poverty in the city. Cheaply constructed wooden tenement houses were sometimes six or seven stories high and built so close together that a fire in one building would quickly spread to the other buildings and would consume an entire street. And as you can well imagine, these wooden high-rises were death traps for impoverished families who had little choice but to live on the upper levels where the rent was cheap, but where escape was nearly impossible in the case of a fire. The risk of an uncontrolled fire in London was well known at the time. It was much feared in the years leading up to the event, but government officials did little to prevent it or to enforce the existing building codes. And then at last, the unthinkable happened. Fire started in one of the city bakeries and it spread quickly from house to house, consuming nearly everything in its path that was made of wood. In total, the Great Fire of London consumed some 13,000 homes, 87 church buildings, and left the majority of London's population in a state of homelessness and despair. It was one of the worst and most memorable tragedies in English history. This morning, as we open the Word of God and continue our study in 1 Corinthians, we are going to see a similar fire hazard that exists in the spiritual realm and in the church of Jesus Christ. It is the danger of building our lives and building our ministries and building our churches with cheap combustible materials that will not be able to withstand the fire of God's coming judgment. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, I'm going to read the entire chapter this morning. I want to remind you as I read, this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it 
because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Thanks be to God for this reading of his word this morning. Well, last Lord's Day, we began to look at Paul's teaching here in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians. We observed that the Apostle Paul uses three different illustrations in this chapter to help the Corinthian Christians come to grips with the sinfulness of their division and disunity to help them adopt the proper attitude towards one another and the right attitude towards the leadership God has established in his church. First illustration we looked at last week was the metaphor of a developing baby. The second one is the image of laborers working in a farmer's field. And the third illustration is that of a building under construction. With God's help this morning, we're going to look at the second two of those illustrations that deal primarily with the subject of church leadership. You recall from last week, Paul begins his third chapter of his epistle with a stern word of rebuke towards the members of the Corinthian church who are not maturing and were not growing up as they should have been. When Paul planted this church five years earlier, he had nursed the newborn Christians with milk. He had done everything in his power to give them a good start in the Christian life and to make sure that they were moving forward in the right direction. But now several years have passed since the founding of the church, and some of the members who should have long since matured into spiritual adults are still demanding milk from the bottle, and they're still making the same old messes. They're still throwing the same silly tantrums. They are still acting with immaturity and animosity towards one another and towards the leadership of the church. Although positionally these believers are in Christ, they have the indwelling presence of the Spirit, they are practically acting like babies in their day-to-day lives. Now the Apostle Paul, as a concerned and loving father in Christ, speaks sternly to these wayward Christians and tells them they need to grow up and start acting their age. Verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Although some have taken Paul's words here as an excuse for counterfeit Christians to remain comfortably and permanently in their disobedience and worldliness, that is clearly not Paul's intent. 
Paul's intent in writing these verses is not to lull the Corinthians to sleep or to grant the non-believers among them a false assurance of faith. His intent is to wake them up, to shock them by putting the spiritual contradiction before their eyes. Christians who claim to have the Spirit within them, but yet live their lives as though nothing has changed. Christians who want to go to heaven one day, but have very little concern for holiness. Christians who've been called to live a supernatural life of obedience and spiritual wisdom, but yet live out their days as mere men and who act as slaves to the wisdom of this world. The Apostle is not in any way implying these professing Christians can live in their carnal state forever. He wants them to repent of their sin and to get back on track. He wants these men and women in the church to walk in full obedience to Christ, to play their part in building up the church rather than tearing it apart and wasting their lives. This is a church that is full of worldly, carnal people. And according to Paul, the main evidence of their worldliness and their carnality is seen in the spirit of jealousy and strife that is splitting the church apart. By the way, those same two qualities, jealousy and strife, are mentioned again by the Apostle in Galatians 5 alongside a whole host of other attitudes and behaviors that characterize a person living in the flesh. These are qualities of the unsaved world that Paul contrasts with the fruits of the Spirit. Instead of producing spiritual fruit for the glory of God, the Corinthians are instead producing the works of the flesh. And in the process, they are calling the reality of their salvation into question so that Paul will later instruct these same Same professing Christians to examine themselves carefully to see whether they are truly in the faith, whether their hearts have truly been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Paul's opening illustration of a developing baby is a rebuke of worldliness in the church that was leading these believers to unnecessary fighting and division so that one person was saying, I follow Paul, and another saying, I follow Apollos, even though Paul and Apollos were not at odds with one another and were fully united in the work of the gospel. And so after highlighting the problem of spiritual immaturity in Corinth, Paul presents his second illustration in verses 5 to 9 that will deal more specifically with the sinful and irrational attitudes these Christians have adopted towards their church leaders. It's the image of a farming illustration. Let's look at those verses again. Verses 5 to 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Although few, if any of us here today, are farmers whose livelihood depends on the planting and harvesting of crops, I suspect that a number of us here today enjoy gardening and can easily relate to the agricultural images that Paul uses in these verses. The metaphor we're given here is the picture of a large farming operation with many laborers working together towards a common mission and a common goal. In this case, it is the goal of producing an abundant and fruitful harvest at the end of the growing season. In Paul's metaphor, the field represents the church of God. The laborers in the field represent the pastors and elders God has put in place with the owner of the field being God himself. It's 
It's important to recognize here at the outset, this metaphor of the farm relates most directly and specifically to spiritual leadership in the church, although I would be quick to add here that the main principle this illustration teaches applies more broadly to each and every Christian. A little later on in the epistle of 1 Corinthians, Paul will compare the local church to a human body composed of many parts. And the point of Paul's body metaphor is is that every member of the Christian church has a unique role to play and a spiritual gift to use. God has designed his church with unity and diversity in view. Both of these things are necessary for any church to grow and to develop as God intends. The principle of unity and diversity in the church applies broadly to all of us as Christians, but here in chapter 3, Paul's focus is not on Christians in general, but on spiritual leaders within the church, because in Corinth, loyalty to those spiritual leaders had become more important than loyalty to Christ. We've seen in these opening chapters, some of the members of the Corinthian church had become so attached to Paul as their founding pastor that they had little use for Apollos or the other pastors that had come and taken his place. On the other hand, there were some people in the Corinthian church that were so enamored by Apollos and his speaking abilities that they considered Paul to be a simpleton who was not worth listening to. Cliques and factions were forming around spiritual leaders in the church, and as I shared a number of weeks ago, it appears that many of the Corinthian believers were attaching themselves to the coattails of these leaders as a way to advance their own selfish interests within the church. A form of self-promoting patronage had taken root in the church of Corinth. As a result, the members of the church were dividing from one another. They were lining up behind whichever leader they thought could best advance their own personal interests. Worldly wisdom had entered into this church. The faithful preaching of the gospel and of Jesus Christ was no longer the central concern of the members. And it was a very sad and sorry state of affairs, to say the least. Although there were many leaders in the church in Paul's day, and there are many leaders in our own day who would be greatly flattered, greatly encouraged by this kind of fawning and loyalty, the Apostle Paul was not at all impressed by it. If anything, Paul was embarrassed by it and angered by it. Paul recognized that the ministry in Corinth was not about him or about Apollos or about any human being. It was about God's glory and the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified. The Apostle Paul understood he was just a tool in God's hands. He was just a channel through which God's grace was permitted to flow for the good of God's people and ultimately for the glory of God. That's the reason why in verse 5, Paul uses Greek grammar to intentionally take the focus off of himself and off of Apollos and to put the focus where it really belongs. Grammatically, we would expect Paul to say in verse 5, Who then is Apollos? And who is Paul? But instead of saying that, he intentionally chooses a neuter pronoun translated as what in the English language. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Corinthians in their foolish pride were placing the main emphasis on the personality and charisma of the leader, in effect idolizing these men and elevating them to the level of God. And so Paul comes along here in verse 5. He rejects the idolatry of the Corinthians. He rejects their misplaced loyalties that had usurped the rightful place of Christ. For Paul the Apostle, the emphasis in Christian ministry should never be on the personality and charisma of the leader, but rather on the task that leader has been called by God to accomplish. 
It's a sad reality today. Many people go into Christian ministry for self-centered reasons, but Paul was not interested in popularity, nor was Paul behind the pulpit for the sake of his own selfish ambition. Paul's only goal, Paul's only motivation in the ministry was to faithfully accomplish the work that God had given him to do. He saw himself as a tool in God's hand, not the center of attention, and the same was true of Apollos. These two men were not gods to be worshipped. They were not people to be placed on a pedestal. They were servants through whom you believed. Verse 5, the Greek word uh, translated servant is diakonos. In context, that was a word that referred to people who served food at tables. Not a particularly glamorous or prestigious job. Once again, the Apostle Paul is carefully choosing his words to take the emphasis off himself and to put the emphasis back on Jesus Christ where it rightfully belongs. In verse 5, Paul identifies himself as a servant who'd been assigned one task in the church. He identifies Apollos as another servant of God who'd been given a different job to do. In the wisdom and the providence of, of God, Paul was appointed to plant the seed of the gospel and Apollos was appointed to water the seed that God had planted or that Paul had planted. These two pastors had different roles to play in God's farming operation in Corinth. And when we see the big picture of the farm, when we understand the ultimate goal that is in view here, it would be absolutely ridiculous to sit back and argue about which job is more important. After all, both of these jobs are required if you were ever to get a harvest at the end of the season. Pretty hard to get a harvest if no one plants a seed. By the same token, it's pretty hard to sell anything at the marketplace if nobody bothers to water and to fertilize the plants. Planting and watering are equally important for uh, crop production. That's why in verse 8, Paul says, He who plants and he who waters are one. The process of planting, the process of watering are complementary tasks that both need to be done if a harvest is to be reaped. But oddly enough, the Corinthians had turned these complementary roles into a kind of competition between church leaders. The members had started to argue and debate about which one of their pastors was the most important and the most eloquent and the most useful. It's very foolish when you stop to think about it. And part of Paul's point in giving the illustration is to show us service in God's kingdom is not about competition. It is about obedience and faithfulness to do whatever God has called and gifted us to do in order that an abundant harvest can be reaped. Corinthians need to understand leadership in the church is not about competition. Secondly, they need to see that every leader in the Christian church is completely and utterly dependent on God for their ministry. No Christian leader or pastor, however gifted, popular, or charismatic they may be, will accomplish anything of eternal value apart from the Holy Spirit creating life in those who are spiritually dead. From a human perspective, the roles that God calls leaders to play in His farming operation are important and necessary for the building of the church. In another sense, the roles we human leaders play are relatively insignificant compared to the role that God plays. That's why Paul writes in verse 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul is not saying there that his role in planting the seed was unnecessary or that Apollos' role in watering the seed was unimportant. Rather, what Paul is doing is putting his ministry role into its proper perspective. People had turned him into an idol. 
People had turned Apollos into an isle. You know, in the big scheme of things, it's not really that hard to plant a seed. It's not that hard to water a seed. But causing a seed to grow is another matter altogether. Causing a seed to grow is something that only God can do. The hard-working farmer can be out in the field from morning to night, cultivating the land and planting the seed, fertilizing the soil, pulling up every weed he sees, creating conditions that are ideal for growth. But no farmer, however hard-working and dedicated he may be, is able to cause the crop to spring up and come to life. That is something that only God can do. And what is true outside in the farmer's field is also true inside of the Christian church. One person is called to plant, another person is called to water. God is the one who causes the seed to grow. You know, there are a number of important lessons in this illustration for those of us who are leaders in the church and also for those of us who are under the spiritual authority of leaders in the church. Pastors and other church leaders must learn from Paul's example never to see their ministry as a means to gain power or influence or popularity, but rather to see their service in the church as a means to accomplish the mission of God by equipping the people of God for the work of the ministry. As pastors and church leaders, we must always keep in mind the field we are working in belongs to God and not to us. Rosedale Baptist Church does not belong to Pastor John. It doesn't belong to Pastor Ron. It doesn't belong to any pastor. It belongs to God. This is not my church. This is God's church. I am merely a laborer in the field, a tool that God uses to accomplish His purpose. That's all I am. Nothing more, nothing less. Pastors will come. Pastors will go. The church of Jesus Christ remains. And you know, I hope and I pray that long after my ministry here at Rosedale is concluded and I'm long gone, this ministry will still be going for the glory of God and still producing a harvest of righteousness. Another lesson for leaders here in this passage is that we should never view one another as competitors in the work of the gospel, but rather to view one another as colleagues who are part of the same team, who are working towards the same goal under the authority of the same Lord. And finally, spiritual leaders should never live under the delusion that we can make converts or to grow the church apart from God's supernatural power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. All Christian ministry must be done with an attitude of complete dependence on God, the open acknowledgement that apart from Him, we can do nothing. And that principle, by the way, applies not only to pastors and church leaders, it applies to every Christian who is exercising their gift for the building up of the church. For those of you in the congregation who are under the authority and care of spiritual leadership, this passage is critically important in shaping your attitude. God expects His people to submit to godly leadership in the church and to respect the leaders who have been called to shepherd the flock. But at the same time, we must learn from the examples of the Corinthians never to turn our leaders into idols or to place our leaders on a pedestal where they do not belong. We should also be reminded from this passage never to pit the strengths of one leader against the weakness of another. God in His wisdom has made every pastor, every leader unique, and we do not all have the same gifts and abilities. Although every leader in the local church must be gifted to teach the Word, not every leader or elder will be equally strong in the pulpit. Not every elder will be equally strong in the counseling room. 
Different pastors, different people have different strengths. Different pastors have different weaknesses. And that being the case, if a pastor is faithfully exercising his gift for the glory of God, is rightfully handling the word of truth and the power of the Holy Spirit, we should support and encourage that person in the work of the gospel while praying continually that the Holy Spirit will work powerfully through the ministry. You know, one of the things I've really come to appreciate in ministry here at Rosedale is the opportunity to serve alongside a group of elders and to make myself accountable to those leaders. And I'm very grateful that in some of the areas where I am weak, in some of the areas where I am inexperienced, Pastor Ron and Glenn are strong. And we can work together as a pastoral team to complement one another in the work of the ministry. That's the way that God has designed leadership to function in the church. Leaders who complement one another in the work of the gospel and not leaders who compete with one another. Let's move on now to the third and final illustration we find in verses 10 to 17 of our text. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that, sur- that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. In verse 9, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul switches his metaphor from the cultivation of a field to the construction of a building. And just like the metaphor of the farmer's field we've already considered, Paul's new comparison of the church to a building project is intended to focus our attention on the unique role God has given to pastors and leaders within the church for the building up of the church. But that being said, again here I would quickly add, the principles outlined in this illustration apply broadly to every Christian who is called to use their spiritual gift for the building up of the church. Paul is focusing here specifically in this context on the role of pastors and leaders. In reality, we are all part of this building project. We are all contributing to this building in some way as fellow laborers in the cause of the gospel. Now those of you here today who know anything about construction will know that the most important part of any building is the foundation. If the foundation of a structure is not laid properly at the beginning of the project, nothing else is going to be right with that building. Eventually, the building will collapse and will come to nothing. The Lord Jesus once made the same point in his parable about a man who foolishly built his house on the sand and another man who wisely built his house on the rock. And so it should not come as a surprise that Paul pays so much attention to the foundation of the church and gives us instruction how we are to build on top of that foundation. Notice first of all here that Paul describes himself as a wise master builder who is entrusted with the responsibility of laying the foundation for the church. Very likely Paul is describing himself in these terms because he was the founding pastor of the church in Corinth, the man that God 
uh, chose to introduce the pagan people in that city to the life-changing gospel of Christ. In one sense, Paul laid the foundation because he's the founding pastor of the church. But beyond that specific ministry in the city of Corinth, I believe Paul is speaking more generally about his role as an apostle of Christ who helped to lay the foundation of the church universal for all future generations of Christians. And I say that because in Ephesians 2 verse 20, Paul uses the same metaphor of a building and informs us the church of Christ was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul and the other apostles of Christ were not only entrusted with the task of functioning as traveling missionaries and church planners, these men also wrote down the words of Christ. They were used by God, chosen by God, to produce the authoritative teaching and instruction we find today in the inspired Word of God. The church of Christ is founded upon the apostolic teaching contained in Scripture. In that sense, Paul played a crucial and unique role in laying a foundation for all future generations of Christians. And we are still building on that foundation today at Rosedale Baptist Church as we proclaim the Word of God and as we submit to the authority of the Word of God. Verse 10 of our text, Paul refers to himself as a wise master builder. At first glance, that description might appear to be rather arrogant and boastful. In reality, the reason why Paul describes himself as wise there in verse 10 is because his entire ministry in Corinth was rooted in the wisdom of God and the preaching of the cross, just as he tells us in the opening verses of chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In their arrogance and pride, the Corinthians wanted to build the church on a new foundation of worldly wisdom, but Paul, in humility and wisdom, insisted there is only one legitimate foundation for the Christian church, and that foundation is Jesus Christ and the preaching of the cross. Paul understood the truth that we sometimes sing together at our worship services. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Paul's conviction about this foundation could not be more clear, more unwavering. It's a conviction that should be emblazoned on every one of our hearts and in every one of our churches. Verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, understand this morning, the only legitimate foundation for the Christian church is Jesus Christ and the preaching of the cross. And if you ever come across an organization that claims to be a Christian church, but does not preach the gospel, does not preach Christ crucified, you might find lots of activity in that building. You might find lots of motivational speaking. You might find lots of music. You might find lots of people gathered together, but one thing you will not find there is the true church of Jesus Christ. Because the Scriptures tell us the church is founded on the rock of Christ. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul emphasizes, first and foremost, we must build our ministries and our churches on the right foundation. But secondly, he goes on to tell us in these verses, we must use the right building materials in our construction because a day is coming when our work will be tested in the fires of God's judgment. Let's look again at verses 12 to 17. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, 
Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that, that anyone one built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. By the way, there in verse 16 and 17, where it says, you, you are the temple of God, the you in the Greek there is plural. He's not talking about the individual Christian. He is talking about the church collectively. In verse 12, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul lists a number of different materials that can be used for this building project, and the materials that, is, that are listed by Paul differ in their value and their durability. Gold, silver, precious stones are the kind of valuable materials that can endure the heat of a fire. Wood, hay, and straw are the kind of cheap combustible materials that will be quickly burned up and reduced to nothing. On the one hand, it's obvious Paul is distinguishing between materials that are fireproof and materials that are not, and the reason for that distinction will become very clear in just a moment. On the other hand, Paul is distinguishing between materials that would have been used in the ancient world to construct a temple and materials that would have been used to construct an ordinary house. And the implication here, as Paul states in verse 16, is that the new covenant church is the true temple of God. And if the church is the true temple of God and the dwelling place of His Spirit, it should be obvious we don't build the temple with ordinary materials, but with precious and valuable materials that are meant to last. Materials that are meant to show the glory and majesty of our King. Brothers and sisters, if we truly understand how precious, how important the church is to our God as His holy temple, we will strive to build the church on the foundation of Christ with the very best materials that we can possibly give, with motives that are pure and right in the eyes of a holy God. If we truly love the Lord, we ought to give Him our very best. We ought to serve Him with our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. Instead of serving the Lord with half-hearted zeal or selfish motivations that rob Him of His glory, we serve God in such a way that all of the glory goes directly to Him and none of the glory comes to us. In such a way that our hearts cry out, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be the glory. Secondly, we're building with the right materials. We will be serving our Lord and building His church according to the clear teaching and instruction of His Word and not according to our own whims and human methods. Finally, we ought to be building the church and, and serving the Lord with the spiritual gifts that He has graciously given to us through the Holy Spirit and not to allow those spiritual gifts to lie dormant and unused. Don't forget the parable that Jesus told about the wicked servant who was given a talent but buried it in the ground. A man who did not understand that one day he would stand before the Lord in judgment and would give an account to the master of the way he used his gift. Friends, if we want our work on earth to glorify Christ, to withstand the fire of his judgment on that great day when Christ appears, it is imperative that we use the right materials that we build in such a way that our work will endure, serving the Lord diligently and faithfully with the right motives, relying fully on the wisdom of God and not on the wisdom of this world. Scriptures testify in many places 
A day of judgment and reckoning is indeed coming to this earth. It will be a great day. It will be a terrible day when God will reward believers and the day when God will judge the wicked and banish them forever in the lake of fire. And when our Lord returns to this earth and the great day of His wrath has finally arrived, there will be two outcomes. Eternal life or eternal death. And the defining factor on the day of judgment will be whether or not we have built our lives on the right foundation. Those Christians who have repented of sin and trusted in Christ alone for salvation will be saved from divine wrath. They will be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. But those who trusted in their own efforts instead of trusting in Christ will find themselves on that day eternally separated from a holy and righteous and loving God. At the end of the day, there are really only two categories of people in the world. The saved and the lost. Those who have built their lives on the solid rock and those who have built their lives on the sinking sand of human effort and good works. And if you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, I would urge you and plead with you to come to Him, confess your sins to Him, cast yourself on His mercy and grace. He will save you. He will forgive you. He will enable you to begin building your life on the right foundation to become part of the temple that He is right now building for His own glory. The Apostle Peter says, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. The starting point for building our lives on the right foundation is to repent of our sin and to trust fully in Jesus Christ in the full confidence that He will save us from the wrath to come. He will make us part of His holy temple, which is the church. Paul speaks in verse 17 about eternal destruction for those enemies of the gospel who build on the wrong foundation, who attempt to tear down and destroy the temple of God. But note carefully, this is not merely a warning in the text for non-believers who reject the gospel. There is a warning in this text for believers too, and especially for leaders in the church. Because according to Paul's teaching here in these verses, it is quite possible for a person to build on the right foundation, but to use the wrong material. And when the day of God's judgment finally arrives and our works are tested by fire, some of us will watch in great horror and shame as a lifetime of labor goes up in the flames because we built our ministry and we built our lives with wood and hay and stubble. And so, Christian friends, I ask you as we close our time in the Word this morning, how are you building on the foundation of Jesus Christ and the Gospel? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Or are you seeking first your own kingdom and giving God the leftovers? Are your motives and your priorities right before God? Or are you serving the Lord in such a way that some of the glory goes to you? Are you using your spiritual gifts, the gifts that God has given you for the building up of His church? Or are you allowing your gifts to lie dormant and unused? Brothers and sisters, let us determine through the power of the Holy Spirit and for the glory of Christ to live our lives with eternity in view and to build God's temple with materials that will last. And so I conclude this morning with these words from the Apostle John recorded in the second chapter of his first epistle. And now, little children, remain in Him 
so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.